this is a special bonus episode of the show. Um, I, I managed to get to speak with uh, John Daglish, who is appearing as Spike in the play of the same name, uh, written by Nick Newman, uh, who uh, has appeared on this show recently, and, uh, and Ian Hislop. Um, and so obviously it's about the life of Spike Milligan, centering on his um, uh, goon show period. And uh, it's currently enjoying sold out performances at the Watermill Theatre in Berkshire. So regular listeners to the podcast will have heard my chat with Nick um, about the genesis of the play. And uh, now I'm fortunate to have been able to speak to one of its stars. Um, John's career is, has uh, included a, a lot of acclaimed stage work. He won the Laurence Olivia Award for uh, Best Actor in a Musical for his portrayal of Ray Davis in Sunny Afternoon, which we actually um, talk quite a bit about. Um, He's also uh, appeared extensively on uh, TV and in films, notably uh, Lark Rise to Candleford, Christopher Robin, Justice League, and The Third Day. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. So yeah, so John and I uh, started having a bit of a chat, a bit of small talk, getting to know each other, and I asked him where he was. Um, I'm just uh, in my little uh, digs room uh, on site at the theatre. I've got a little a little cottage just on the other side of the car park. Oh, um, listening to the trees struggle to stay in the ground at the moment. <laughs> yeah, which is um, what is it? Storm Eunice. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm up. I, I'm up in the northwest, and it's not quite so bad. But um, it's not it's not Kansas conditions, you know. But <laughs> you um, haven't got your ruby slippers on just yet. No, no. <laughs> um, but it's. Um, it's a, it's blowing a bit. Let's put it that way. You wouldn't go out with a wig. No, no, no. <laughs> but I, I spoke with Nick Newman several weeks ago, and he that was just I think it was on the eve of the show actually starting, and um, he gave me a good overview of the creative process and touched on you know the cast as well. But this was before the show had actually opened. Uh, so yeah, so you know I wanted just to talk to you about about the play and everything like that but also i wanted to talk to you about well let's just i'll just kick off if that's okay yeah of course yeah let's come. yeah so john if you don't mind me asking i obviously i've done a little bit of research and i think you're um you, you're just over the hill you're just just in your early 40s Is that that's right? right yeah i just turned 41 uh last week actually yeah okay okay um so obviously like i've like, probably got a similar introduction to it to the goons to you as, as my dad was also a, a big fan and listening to kind of cassettes in the back of his car was my kind of first introduction to the goons okay so what's the earliest memory you have of it do you do you remember a particular show or just yeah. do they all sort of merge into one no i think we had a kind of uh, like a collector like a sort of double cassette uh, case uh, and i think it was napoleon's piano and yep. uh Oh gosh, what was on the other side of it? Maybe the flea. The flea. The flea, possibly. Mm. Mm. But I think Napoleon's piano for me has always kind of stood out. It seems to have a, a lovely chunk of every of every character that you want, um, with a with a sort of followable storyline to it. Yes. Um, and enough silliness that uh, me being God, I must have been maybe ten or eleven. Um, right. Would have absolutely loved and then you know rediscovering those cassettes on a clear out maybe when i was sort of 15 16 
um, listening to them again. I used to listen to a lot of um, audio books and stories and things on cassette to kind of help me go to sleep at night. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. And I think the goons was probably one of the worst things to do for that because it was just so uh, <laughs> frenetic, so hilarious, and yeah, yeah. And, and exactly. It's, there's nothing kind of calming about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you want to listen to Hancock's Half Hour if you want to be sent That's off to true. sleep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. So so had you i guess you know growing up in the 80s and 90s in this country mm. you, you you would have been exposed <laughs> in, in manner of speaking to spike milligan and to harry and to peter you you you'd be aware of the, aware of these people yeah yeah absolutely i mean harry seekham probably more from kind of like the kind of songs of praise era or uh sort of long walks on country file or, or you know highway like that or mm. country high that's the one yeah uh, Spike Milligan, I suppose, I don't, don't think I really associated him with the goons, actually, because it was this kind of uh, other kind of audio world. But I guess my first uh, sort of being aware of Spike as a person would have been in the Musketeers films. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, those films have the most amazing cast. I mean, yeah, Charlton Heston and Christopher Lee and Faye Dunaway and yeah, Spike, Spike and Spike Milligan just being Spike Milligan in the middle of it all. Um, but it was his and uh, his and uh, Rory Kinnear's um, sort of comic turns in that that were just amazing. Roy oh, Kinnear? No, Roy, Kinnear. Kinnear. Roy, Roy Kinnear. Kinnear. Sorry, yeah. The father of Rory. Yes, yeah, that's it. Well, the thing about though that the, the Musketeers is that um, Spike had the great good fortune to be um, playing the husband of Raquel Welch. Yes, of course. Yeah, <laughs> that's the most unlikely piece of casting you know. <laughs> yeah. Yes, of course. The husband to the Queen's dressmaker. That's right. Mm, mm. Mm. <laughs> and and Sellers, I guess you'd have just seen Pink Peter Sellers. It was yeah, Pink Panther would have been for me, um, and then later on things like Being There, um, and then the old, you know, all the old Ealing comedies, the Lady Killers, and all the kind of um, all that great. Uh, what's the one in the factory? Is it I'm all right, Jack. I'm all right, Jack. Yep. Um, yeah, sort of all aware of them all, but but all uh, individually uh, and not really associating them with the goons that much, I suppose, until I was much older and could kind of go, oh, this is their origin of all these guys. Sure. Um, and then things again with Spike, like popping up in Life of Brian, or uh, uh, I think I was a bit young. I think I just missed his kind of cue series um, yeah yeah and then i would have been watching kind of reruns of of python because my dad was into pythons yeah and then much much later probably uh being passed poetry books of spikes um at school uh sort of yeah i guess as a late a late teenager mm. yeah my wet pet and all that <laughs> yeah okay again that's something a lot of people say that they um yeah they they discovered the goons through the through the dad and then when they were teenagers when they were slightly becoming quite introspective as teenagers tend to do they discovered his poetry as well yeah um, yeah so okay so let's let's sort of fast forward to to today so obviously mm. you, you you were playing spike in in this uh, this this play by ian and nick um what was the i mean what was the casting process for that um, well, it was uh, it was a lockdown casting process, so it was all done over Zoom. It was just uh, right. I'd had a, a, an email from my agent, as as you normally get, um, just to say, you know, the show's going ahead. They'd love you. To, they'd love to see you for Spike. 
and that was immediately interesting to me because I thought, God, what a, what a character to get inside of. Um, not mm. knowing a huge amount about the man himself at the time, but uh, just thought, what a what a great fun thing that would be to do. Actually, There's a, there was a small part of me I have to admit that went, oh, I'd quite like to play Peter Sellers, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, they sent me the script, and the script was just incredible. Um, Immediately, I responded to it and, and thought, "Yeah, I really, I really want to do this." Um, so I had a Zoom meeting uh, with Paul Hart, um, mm -hmm. a video call, you know, and just read through a few scenes with him, and uh, yeah, I seemed to get on well with him, which is always another bonus as well when you're starting a job with a director. Um, and I had a few phone conversations with him after I'd been given the green light that it was, it was going to be me. Um, yeah, and and I think I think that Paul again it was another you know similar to us where he had sort of secondhand inherited spite from his parents. Or, you know, yes, um, there seems to be a whole generation of us who are who have had these kind of hand hand me down uh, uh, comedy heroes from mm. the Pythons to Milligan and Sellers and all these these great people that we we just sort of missed out on. What's your name? Raza, R A S A. Well, that's an interesting name. Where are you from? Behind the Iron Curtain? No, Bradford. I'm very interested in talking to you about the fact that you, uh, well, you won an um, Olivia Award for playing um, Ray Davis. Mm. It's um, not that dissimilar, actually, in, in, a, in a weird way. There are sort of echoes through this play of, of what we did in Sunny Afternoon, actually. Um, oh, in, in what way? Well, certainly that, that uh, Sunny Afternoon was a lot about... Um, Ray's kind of battling with his management and with the kind of money men and with the kind of contractual side of things. I suppose Spike's, Spike's battles with the BBC were slightly more to do with creativity. I mean, certainly with money as well. Mm. Uh, um, but um, Ray and the Kinks had a, a, a severe lack of decent management in their early years and uh, gave an awful lot of their pie away. Um, mm. Mm. And I think that there is still ongoing issues with who owns what and different territories own different licensing agreements to various bits and bobs i think it's one of the reasons why we never went to uh, new york with the with the sunny afternoon was because there was a whole licensing issue and there's all sorts all sorts going on with that but um also just within the story of the play you know there was a there was a section in uh, in sunny afternoon where, where i had a typewriter um and there's a whole a whole uh, sort of conceit in our play about um, this kind of typing to rhythm, this sort of jazz. Okay. Uh, jazz music is playing. He's almost playing the typewriter like a musical instrument. Um, <clears throat> well, wasn't um, wasn't um, oh, you really got me? Wasn't that originally a jazz tune? Didn't he write it as a jazz? Yeah, it was tune? sort of swung. Yeah, it was kind yeah. of yeah. You really got me going. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, obviously is not the uh, kind of heavy guitar no. associate with that those early Kinks songs. Now. Yeah, the, 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 the Kinks. Uh, I think I'm right in saying, pretty much the only successful British group of that of that generation that didn't really break America, did they? Yeah, well, they had they had a lot of issues with. Um, they were banned uh, from mm. America. Actually, I think that they kind of wore that as a badge of honour for a while. The fact that they were the only band in that kind of British invasion to not be allowed over there. Mm. Um, they had all sorts of issues with the Teamsters and not wanting to pay their rates, and 
mm-hmm. uh, just being badly behaved and and like I said before, not having the same kind of quality of management that someone say like the Beatles had uh, yeah. to kind of keep them just about on track enough that at least the authorities and the powers that be and you know bookers and producers could could work with them. Um, they unfortunately didn't have that. Um, it sounds sort of like they, they were they were sort of managed by these a bit of a chance as the, the yeah, guys that were yeah. in charge of them at the time that thought oh wouldn't it be a jolly jolly laugh to manage a rock and roll band you know using their kind of class privilege to kind of say oh well, we can we can probably do this how hard <laughs> can it be yeah. Um, yeah but yeah i think it made that the appetite for the kinks in america were all the bigger though once that ban had been lifted so i think once they returned to america in the 70s they were Mm. They were huge. They were huge after that. Mm. But yeah, they they certainly suffered. I think from not um, being part of that initial first wave of uh, the kind of British invasion, as we call it. Yeah, is is a lot of it about the relationship that Ray had with Dave? Uh, yeah, somewhat, somewhat. It's um, there is yeah. There's definitely shades of that towards the end of the of the show. Um, I mean, Ray mm. was certainly a lot more involved in the making of it than Dave was okay um my first uh, introduction to that we, we were doing workshops with it maybe three years before we eventually went into production and the first workshop we had was me and uh ray and joe penhorn the writer and oh uh, god so you you had to play ray in front of ray oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. ray was involved from the very beginning good god um, what's that like it was amazing actually he was incredibly gracious and very um he, he, he kind of let me off from, from the start because he said that he didn't want an impersonation, um, which is always a good thing to hear. I, I, I get quite uncomfortable sometimes watching actors sort of impersonate people because I think you do mm-hmm. lose a lot of... I think you always have to bring something of yourself to a role because you can't get away from yourself. You know, I'm not going to have uh, plastic surgery and because it's on stage, it's not going to be... They're not going to kind of CGI my face to look like yeah. all this kind of stuff. Um and I think that there is a difference between an actor and an impersonator, you know, and it's, it's a, I find sometimes when I watch someone who's trying to do a really great impersonation, it gets in the way of the performance. Mm. So I was really glad that he, he kind of let me off with that. Um, and I've said, I've sort of taken a similar approach to Spike, obviously not having the benefit of Spike in the room clearly, because he's, he's not been with us for the last 20 years, but mm. um but a similar kind of approach to say, right, well, this is the character. If I can nail the character of the man and the energy of the man and the and the creativity and imagination of this guy, um, then that's the most important thing. Trying to get the goon voices as close to how people mem- remember them as possible and leave the actual man alone a bit and bring myself to that character a bit more. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I had the same thing with Ray. It was obviously brilliant to have Ray in the room and giving me that little out at the beginning and i think it gave us all the kind of freedom to just play uh well for me to play a young man who has found himself famous through his creativity and finds it all quite amusing and um yeah yeah and and not necessarily the most extrovert of characters being a front man of a band you know i i, I it's one of the things i found really interesting about ray was that he was he comes across as very shy actually very quiet quite reserved in his head a thinker a writer you know a poet that kind of mentality um 
I remember in the first few workshops as well, I kept just staring at his head, just feeling like, wow, all of that, all of that output has just come from this sort of football sized piece of meat. And it's, it's quite yeah. remarkable. Like, wow. All of those songs, all of the emotions that, that you feel when you listen to those songs, all of the kind of energy of those songs, it's all just in that little space. It's all come out of there. I found that incredible. But um, compare kind of, early kinks records to early beatles records um i think ray wins lyrically actually <laughs> mm-hmm. and certainly like thematically he's, he's writing about it from a from a voyeuristic sort of point of view this sort of observer of life you know rather than, rather than about someone who's in a relationship or something or or you know he and he talks about it you know you <laughs> i think he said this i think it was one of the things that he'd said when he collected his uh Olivier Award for the for sunny afternoon. He went on to say, uh, you know, you might see me sitting on a bench one day with a notebook in my hand, and the likelihood is I'm just I'm just watching you all and <laughs> taking notes. Yeah. For future well, time. yeah, because you think of what my favorite song, Kink song, is Waterloo Sunset, and yeah, isn't that basically about two other people? Yeah, that's it. I Terence mean, Stamp and Julie Christie. I think so. I think so. Yeah. yeah. He's quite. Um, I suppose as most artists are, whether they're painters or musicians, or, he's quite uh, <clears throat> secretive about what his songs are actually about, or he'll tell different stories to different people at different times about what they're about. So I quite like that there's a sort of mystery about what they might actually be about, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. there was all this stuff about Lola. What was that about? You know, mm. and I think he's told about five or six different yeah. stories about what that what that evening <laughs> was. <laughs> uh, look, listen, this has turned into the Kinks podcast. Um, oh, I'm sure people won't. <laughs> no, uh, we this. I mean, the nature of this podcast it's it's go, it goes off in all directions. It really does. You know, um, that's what I love about podcasts. You know, this is what yeah. I love about listening to them is that there's no. There's no rules. It's just a nice conversation. And I think that that's brilliant. And it doesn't have to sort of fit into any kind of box. It's like it can start somewhere and go somewhere else, you know? Yeah. So um, how much did you, what sort of research did you do to, to, to kind of embody Spike or to get well, the we, character? Yeah, we, the, the script is always my first point of call. So, I mean, that, that is, you know, I, I feel like anything outside the remit of the script is sort of, it, it's for the actor really more for the, more than for the audience. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, obviously, so started with the script and then because our window of our, of our play is kind of early goon years, I think we start in 53 and it sort of spans a couple of years, but we're, we're fairly loose with the, with the timeline because, you know, you never, never let the, uh, never let the accuracy of a timeline get in the way of a good story and all that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's a very specific window of, of these kind of early goon show years where Spike has become the main writer post Michael Benteen leaving um, uh, through the crossover of uh, Dennis Bain Wilson to Peter Eaton uh, yep. producing mm-hmm. and um and I just found, I found actually that the best thing for me was to go to the uh, his war memoirs because we reference the war a lot in the play. There is um, quite a few flashbacks to his time, especially in Monte Cassino where he was quite yes. badly injured and, yeah. and had, you know in his own words had his brains bombed out. So I thought so I started with the uh, 
with his war memoirs, which are hilarious and heartbreaking and, and mm. um, actually went through the, the audio books of them because I thought, well, what better way than to hear the man himself read these books out loud, you know? Yeah. And also I found it very difficult to find any, there's not an awful lot of footage of Spike just being Spike because obviously as soon as a camera is on him or there's an audience in front of him, the, the desire to perform and become <laughs> all the myriad of other characters that he has in his head comes out. So actually listening to him just read his own words of a time that was, you know, five or six years before our play is set and almost sets up his entire mindset for the, for the timeline of our play felt like yeah. the best time to go for, you know. Yeah, I know what you say. Yeah, so whenever Spike was always on, whenever there was a, like you say, whenever there was That's a camera, it. um, yeah. it's interesting. Um, there are there are a handful of recordings that exist um, of Goon Show rehearsals, mm. um, where whoever it may be, Peter Reason or, or whatever producer, you, you know, the tape was running, and so you you and it's it's often very poor quality, but you can still make out what they're saying. But you can hear mm. Spike very often being very serious yes, in terms yeah. of explaining exa exactly what he wants, you know, the other two to do or whoever it may be. It may be, uh, you know, one of the, the FX guys or, or yeah. whoever. Yeah. Look, I think we better have both these things on disc now. Forget about the clapping legs. Um, and he sounds extremely um, earnest. It's the only word I can use. Yeah, absolutely. I've certainly brought in some of those elements into the performance. Um, there is uh, a sense that he is—he uh, knows exactly what he wants, you know. Um, and there's a, there's a frustration in the in the kind of pushback against those ideas, um, and we really lean into that in our in our play. Um, Nick and Ian have captured that sort of side of him really well. I think his his sort of pleading with the powers that be that look if you just let me do it my way it'll be brilliant you know um i mean you're thinking like these <laughs> there's a section where we have a bbc executive telling him that he can't have all these explosions and it's just too loud the whole thing is too loud and you're thinking mm. this bbc exec is coming uh, at this from five years six years after the war is finished so you're talking about putting huge artillery fire and uh bombs going off on the radio mm. five or six years after people have gone through the blitz you know so i mean you can mm. see it from their point of view as well um but it's also fascinating as well I, I think i'm sure nick and ian were talking about this as well that um that he seemed to have this obsession with the war throughout the goon years and then never really wrote about it again after that apart from his memoirs of the actual war, but it never seemingly became a theme in a, in much of his work after that. No, you're right. I mean, he he often would dress up as Hitler in the Q series in the seventies yes. <laughs> <laughs> with the beard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, you're right. It was it, it was like the Goon Show was an outlet for him to get yeah, to get it all it, out it, of his system. It seemed like his catharsis, you know, in mm. a way to kind of uh, expel these demons that he had. I mean. God knows what it's like. It's very difficult, I think, for us to imagine being a young man at war, you know. Yeah, I think it's a very difficult place for us to imagine. And especially because if you've got uh, either grandparents or, or, or lucky, lucky enough to have grandparents, um, 
people of our age that have grandparents, they didn't really talk about it. No. Um, no. It's not something that they wanted to dwell on, and I'm, and I'm sure that's for a very good reason. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah, you're right. And um, whereas, like you say, so Adolf Hitler, my partner's downfall, comes out in the 70s. Mm. And then swiftly followed by other books. Um, but he just threw everything down, didn't he? He he just mm. he just I'm I'm going to use the word unburdened himself. But he everything was there. It was stark. It was it was it yeah. was grubby. It was funny. It yeah. was crude. It was you know there was no there was no, yeah you know, he didn't apply any polish to the to the story whatsoever. Not at all. No no he doesn't try and clean it up at all at all does he? It's no. um, it is as warts and all as you can get about something that is as destructive as as it can be you know um and just the ridiculousness of it all as well you know he 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 paints the picture of this just sort of almost farcical kind of way that it was that it seemed to be run (laughs) on the ground level at least just literally sort of running from one side of a field to another like um, (laughs) having being given sort of um, menial duties like painting the grass green yes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because there's an official visit or something um yeah, stuff like yeah. that and then uh, always out for where the next gig was coming from as well yeah mate you know yeah, always yeah. this idea of like right but when but when can we get the instruments out when can we you know is this is this mess uh is this uh sort of canteen or mess is this suitable for a for a swinging jazz yes. night whenever have we you, can get one going you know? have you seen any footage there is footage rare footage of the bill hall trio of him performing um, I don't know that I have, no. Where he's wearing, I'll have to dig it out and send you a, I think it's on, yeah. it's possibly on YouTube, but where it's, I mean, they're dressed very eccentrically. Yeah. And I think he's wearing a false beard, but it's a right. really, it's a really fake looking false beard. Would this have been uh, him as is in his role of entertaining the troops sort of pre- No, stuff or? no, this was post-war. This was 40s, right. late 40s, okay. I think. He could have very easily got into music. He could have very easily yeah, stuck to that. Yeah, I've seen a lot of footage of him playing the trumpet a bit later on, mm. uh, and he's remarkable. I mean, I've, I've, <laughs> I've uh, for my part in this, tried to uh, learn how to play the trumpet in six weeks. Okay, and, um, <laughs> it's uh, unsurprisingly not not an easy instrument to play. <laughs> But I've just about managed to get uh, a couple of tunes out of it. Um, and I'm, it feels very strange to be playing the trumpet in front of 200 people every night, having only picked it up just before Christmas. Which wow, is, yeah, uh, yeah. Bizarre. But um, I, I love stuff like that with, with this with this job. Um, one of the reasons I love being a performer is that every job is different and you learn new skills depending on who it is you're playing, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's gone well. I think I'll continue actually because it's so it's such a fun instrument. It's so it's a it's a genius little tricksy thing, and I'm sure that all brass players will go, oh yeah, well yeah, that's just how they work. But obviously, coming to it from completely unknown, just literally less than two months ago, um, yeah, I find it fascinating that there's a whole that all the technique seems to be in the mouthpiece. You know, there's this embouchure that you have to 
really nail and i i've sort of got that down through watching youtube videos of people holding up the round part of the end of scissors up to their lips so you could see what their <laughs> lips are doing in between right um and just doing that and i think i played with just the mouthpiece for about two weeks before i even dared to put it in the trumpet just because i knew that so much of it was dependent on the noise i was making through this mouthpiece and it's almost like the instrument then sort of contorts the sound and you have to adjust that with with the button pl uh, placements it's a funny one as well because i <laughs> it's one of those instruments that as i was growing up i thought yeah i could probably play the trumpet do you know how you have these things in your head that you think yeah that would probably suit me and i bet i could pick it up and get a note out of it yeah. turns out i was completely wrong it took me it took me weeks and weeks before i could produce a sound that sounded anything other than sort of fart like <laughs> but um yeah i'm really enjoying it actually and i think the more the more obviously the more you play any instrument the more you'll enjoy it so I'm, yeah I'm, okay. I'm playing on a hired one at the moment though so i might have to make a little uh a little might, investment when i finish it'll make sure you drain it when you before you give it back oh yeah absolutely and that's the other thing about the trumpet it is it is probably the most disgusting instrument i've ever played <laughs> it's just gross the amount of spit that comes out of the thing is yeah horrible yeah so obviously you, you yeah in this play you're playing the titular character the main character but you're ably assisted by so is george kemp playing sellers yes um, that's nice. has he got covid i believe at the moment is that right he's isolating at the moment yeah so he tested positive on uh, on monday this week so we've had a wonderful guy called peter jukes come in and, and cover for him on very very short notice right we, li we literally had him in on monday monday afternoon to go on on monday evening um with a script in his hand for the first couple Good of performances God. but as far as i'm aware i think last night he didn't have a script for any of the scenes so i mean in four days only very minimal rehearsal with us uh, and really kind of learning it on stage in front of an audience which is remarkable and incredibly impressive he's managed to nail this character um and you know obviously all the voices that then peter has to do as well um but yeah we, we're certainly missing george as well though because we started the whole you know you start the process with someone it's really sad when they have to kind of step away from it for a while we're sure. hopefully getting him back on on monday i think is the uh is the is the plan at the moment um uh -huh. that's uh -huh. uh depending on if, if he's sort of testing negative by the weekend but uh yeah. but no peter's a great uh, a great standard for sure um, but yeah we certainly miss george because obviously you can't you can't replace the the wealth of kind of knowledge and rehearsal that sort of four weeks rehearsal and and three nearly three weeks in front of an audience gives you and playing off each other obviously. yeah that's it i mean we, we'd, we'd sort of become this well-oiled machine and then you you have to put someone else into that machine and, and don't get me wrong peter's absolutely wonderful and brilliant but um obviously there's a there's a missing of that like oh we were just we were just finding our rhythm with it you know yeah it, yeah it takes a while for these things to bed in especially with a comedy because you can rehearse and rehearse and rehearse in a rehearsal room without an audience and you've got no idea what the rhythm will actually be once people start laughing um yeah, yeah. so you've got i mean i don't think there's a stand-up in the world that would go out and do do their set without having done you know multiple uh trial trial runs and trial gigs mm. in front of small crowds to see what's funny what works where the laughs are where the timing is for each joke you know so i guess um nick and ian were tweaking the script all the time were they 
A little bit, yeah, yeah. We had them in a few times throughout the rehearsal process and they'd come in and check in with us and see what we changed and see if they could then tweak the changes that we had tweaked and sort of kind of make them their own, really hone in on what these gags are. I mean, it is, it is tricky because we're literally on stage telling 70 year old jokes. Um, but uh, it's kind of wonderful the response that it gets because there's a kind of there's a they're kind of knowing laughs that you get from these jokes I I won't say groans although we do get some groans but they're kind of uh, uh, appreciative groans rather than oh my god I can't believe they're telling this joke but it's um I mean that it, it it's it's the beginning of like sort of dad joke humor i suppose yeah uh, yes, puns yeah. and puns and wordplay and, and it sounds kind of old to our ears now and old-fashioned but we've got to tell these jokes as if they were told for the very first time you know there's a reason why these jokes are still sort of passed down and heard of and you think is that really a spike milligan joke or is that really a goon show joke um, <laughs> yeah and it's because they were great then you know um and that's the reason why they're still in our sort of collective consciousness. Um, What's the makeup of the audiences that you're getting? Are they, they tend to be older people, younger people, a mixture or? or yeah, what? for sure. They're a little older. Um, it's, uh, I guess, the demographic of where we are at the Waternall. We're in West Berkshire um, in the middle of the countryside. Yeah. Um, and obviously the content of the play is, you know, it's a Spike Milligan you know, it's a play about Spike and the Goons, so it's and it certainly attracts, you know, a certain demographic, which is great. I mean, it is the exact demographic that we want to play this in front of. Um, but what's really lovely is that people are bringing their kids and they're bringing their grandkids as well. Mm. And uh, I've seen loads of lovely positive comments about, you know, people who have brought their teenage sons or their teenage daughters and, and saying that they absolutely loved it. And having never heard the Goons before or, you know, saying that, God, this is brilliant and they can totally see the direct link between the goons and the kind of modern comics or, or, or uh, comedic writers and, and people that do sitcoms and all this kind of stuff now um so it is you know i feel like in a way we're kind of helping to to keep that tradition of passing this comedy down you know um, mm, mm. through the generations which is great but no, it's certainly a slightly a slightly older demographic than say I'm used to playing in, in London or I mean, oh, I'm, I'm really I'm really amazed at how how warm the reception's been. And as far as I'm aware, we're pretty much sold out now for the run. But um, excellent. It's, uh, it's gone. It's gone. It's gone very, very well. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I have to touch wood. I think. Okay. This is this is when Storm Eunice decides to just blow a <laughs> hole right the way through the whole theatre. I've said that. Yeah. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> um, we mentioned George um, and uh, Peter. You said Peter, yes, Jukes, Peter and Jukes, but yeah. you've also obviously we've got you've got Jeremy Lloyd who plays Harry. Yeah, who's just absolutely nailing that part as well. He's got this this kind of huge energy about him on stage and this this big, big voice. Um, uh, you know, I imagine working with Harry Seeker was like like a whirlwind coming into the room. He's yeah. Just, you know, a bit kind of almost Brian Blessed in his, uh, <laughs> in his kind of booming nature. Um, but no, Jeremy's brilliant in it as well. Yeah, it's been so much fun. George and Jeremy and uh, and myself playing off of each other through rehearsals. It's just been, it's been so liberating and and playful and silly and you know. Okay. Um, yeah. You can, you can as you can imagine playing these three guys in a rehearsal room with kind of 
no audience in front of you and, and kind of no rules. It is, uh, it's an absolute joy to do. Um, and they, they bring so much and really kind of bring, bring all of themselves to the part. And it's, it's wonderful to get up on stage with them every night. I can't, I can't actually praise the cast enough. They're all so, so well cast so funny every one of them's got incredible funny bones um i've not actually done a, an all-out comedy on stage before um i've obviously done lots of plays and, and lots of plays with comic elements in them but yeah. um, my kind of comedy sort of playing has, has mostly been on screen um, mm. in mm. sitcoms and and uh, sort of uh oh what do they call them now Dramedies, yes, <laughs> yes, comedoramas, yeah. comedora like uh, Beaver Falls. Beaver Falls, yeah, yeah, yeah. that was certainly uh, <laughs> slightly more down the comedy route for sure. Um, <laughs> that was a lovely job. Gosh, we had that was uh, what would that have been? Four or five months in South Africa, two wow. years on, in a row, which was absolutely gorgeous because we had to film it in the winter uh in our winter so we couldn't go to america and obviously filming in america is a lot more expensive anyway yeah. so, so we had all these like vineyards and and it all doubled up very nicely for california um, very nice but that was a really that was a very special special job i mean like any job where you have to go away for that is uh residential um mm -hmm. really is if the people are great they're the best jobs because you you get to immerse yourself in these little bubbles of work for a few months, you know, like this job. I mean, I'm only, I'm only as far as West Berkshire in this, in this job, but still we're all on site all of the time. We're all staying in these little cottages around the, around the theater in this gorgeous rural location. And um, there's nothing else to do apart from hang out with each other and get to know each other. So you build these very close bonds very quickly with other actors. Um, and it's the same on every other residential job I've done for, for film or television, where if you're away somewhere, especially in another country where you're, you're, you're literally each other's support group, friend group, family group, um, and work colleagues the entire time. If you, if you have a bond with even just one or two people, they can be really amazing, profound experiences actually, and come away with, uh, with kind of lifelong friends from those things. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm going to be speaking with, um, Margaret, Margaret Cabon Smith. Oh, lovely! Next oh, you'll week. have fun with her. She's great. Yeah, she's great. And the, uh, I believe so her her role ostensibly, or is it, she has a number of roles, but sound effects person. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. she plays Janet, the kind of hard hard done by, uh, <laughs> slightly put upon, um, on spot uh, spot. What do they call it? Spot foley artist. Yes. Yeah. So the person that does the live sound effects in the studio during the recordings. So things like walking on gravel paths with shoes or you know coconuts for horses and all this kind of stuff so she starts um brilliantly starts both of our acts with this these wonderful monologues where she demonstrates uh, these kind of soundscapes going from kind of live prop work uh, sounds i think that's what you call foley like knocks on doors and yeah. actual physical things that you do with your hands with props as proxies for real sounds in the real world Plus then the kind of more sophisticated kind of audio uh, recordings of things. Um, Grams. Sound, soundscapes mm. of marketplaces or, or explosions going off and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but she has these two absolutely hilarious and brilliant uh, sections at the beginning of each act where she kind of introduces us to this world of, uh, 
of the Foley artist. And she's obviously got incredible comedy bones as well as, as with the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. She really sets us up well and puts the audience at ease before, before they have to uh, <laughs> come to terms with seeing other actors playing their heroes, which I think is sometimes quite a shock to people. They're like, oh, because you, I, I suppose if you're a huge Spike Milligan fan or a huge Peter Sellers fan or a huge uh, uh, Harry Seacombe fan, and you come to see a play like this, there's an awful lot of expectation on us um, as to what you're going to get. But uh, she sets it up so brilliantly and puts the audience at ease before we even come on that they're already laughing and in a place where by the time we're on stage, they, they're sort of accepting of like, oh, okay, yeah, great. Well, we're in, we're in. Excellent. We feel yeah. comfortable that we're going to laugh at this. Yeah. Um, the, obviously, the play revolves around your character, around Spike. Mm. You're, you're So you're reenacting sections of goon shows as well mm. other than those scenes what part do harry and peter play in the in the narrative um so peter peter's uh, relationship with spike you know uh, uh, slightly volatile at times so there's, mm. there's sections where we, you know we cover the uh, i don't know how many how many spoilers i should give away but oh, there's there's yeah. there's sections where we give away where we we talk about the incident with the potato peeler yep um and uh oh, that's intriguing isn't it to people that don't know <laughs> yes right that's it what could that possibly be um but um yeah there's a kind of the, the the relationship between peter and spike seems to be a sort of um trying to trying to up each other do you know what i mean in this in this way that probably made them both top of their game you know like if you have a couple of peers that are sort of equal and they're, and they're both trying to outdo each other. They'll yeah. both produce better work for yeah. having each other around. Um, whereas Harry and Spike's relationship, certainly in our play, is certainly one of much more of a, a very old friendship that goes much deeper than, than comedy or the goon show. Um, Harry's relationship with Spike is much more, um, <clears throat> in, our, in our production, much more of a friend. He's there for him when Spike has his breakdown. Um, there's a wonderful scene in the pub that we just have with just with just Harry and Spike talking about Spike's dad and about about his family and about about how he was affected by the war and and although it's always done with a kind of wink and a nod to the comedy side, they're they're really heartwarming scenes actually. There's a scene where Harry comes to visit Spike in hospital after he's had his kind of breakdown in Coventry, um, having sort of bombed to yes. uh, to a yes. huge house. Uh, and then has a, a an incident, let's say, after mm. the gig where um, he's had to be uh, committed to a, a psychiatric ward. Mm. Um, and there's a lovely scene in the hospital with um, with Harry and with June, his wife at the time. Um, and yeah, like I said, the, the, there's always a wink and a nod to the comedy side because of the the style that Ian Nick have, have written the play in. Um, I know that they were very conscious not to go down the kind of typical route, and I'm sure that Nick has spoken about this with you, about not going down that route of uh, the usual kind of tears of a clown. Yeah, that's right. Um, and to actually to celebrate this this incredibly creative time in in Spike's life and all these people's lives. And actually, when you when I think I've seen footage of Peter Sellers saying that this was the most fulfilling time in his entire career was that with these years with the goon show that's right yeah and um and they didn't want to dwell too much on the on the dark side but we certainly don't shy away from it either mm-hmm. i know that obviously you mentioned that it it begins post benteen so benteen 
gets a mention, I guess. Does does um does Larry Stevens get mentioned at all? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, he gets a little name check when the when the BBC executive is talking about um, he's sort of dip, putting the marker down that that spot that uh, Peter Sellers and Harry Seacombe are the talent, and Spike is just the writer, <laughs> and so like he's sort of saying, and I think uh, it's uh, Dennis Main Wilson in the first few scenes who's saying to him. Well, what about all these other pe- people? He's saying, "Oh yes, writers. Yes, writers." Like, um, like, um, and then Dennis May Wilson sort of reels out this this list of other writers that the goons had. He says, "Yes, them, them, the others." You know, mm. <laughs> sort mm. of sort of putting them down as just as much as Spike with, "Yes, the others that do that writing thing." However important that might be, I'm not sure, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I just mentioned that because because Larry's part in the goons' history has kind of gone under the radar kind of been forgotten oh, and oh. it's been redressed very recently in recent years by an excellent uh, book about him by julie warren one of his um relations actually mm-hmm. um i have he, to admit i i hadn't heard the name before going on to this jump i wasn't aware of him at all well I mean, yeah that, that's coming out yeah yeah i mean he he would have probably gone into bigger and better things but he tragically died young he died in 59 oh, um, gosh. he and spike had worked together a lot hell of a lot and yeah. you know i just wonder whether yeah i just i just think he he deserves more credit than he gets um so i'm glad he gets a name check <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean we yeah we name check uh larry, larry and also um eric sykes is another yep. writer and you know mm-hmm. um people i didn't know were associated with the goons actually i didn't know that eric sykes had anything oh, yeah. before coming on board on this um i mean my, my knowledge of the goons was very much only as a listener really sure so what voices have what's the what's the easiest voice to do for you uh (laughs) (laughs) probably probably echoes for me because it's just i mean it's probably the voice that i responded to the most as a kid as well you know um i'm thinking about that napoleon's piano episode where he sort of finds him i think in the bowels of a ship singing this song and i think that was probably my first Mm. my first interaction with echoes was this sort of um I talk to the trees. That's why they put me away. You know, this kind of... <laughs> Very um, good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll give you a blast. Of it, Thank you. Know. you. Um, I talk to the trees. <laughs> That's why they put me away. And that there's that whole there's that brilliant gag where they're trying to get the they're trying to get the piano across the Thames at the uh, across the channel, and he starts to saw the legs off the oh, yes. off the channel. Mm. Off the piano, yeah. Saws four legs off the piano and says, That's funny. I'm sure there's only three legs on a grand piano. And Eccles just goes, Oh, I keep falling down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I I love Eccles. I mean, like, my, my, I suppose my kind of go to voice when I was a kid would have been Blue Bottle because it's just, it's just the silliest of all the voices, you know. And it's just this sort of, you know, little thing, bend off that fixing touch thing, you know. Thanks. Uh, but um, I think that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to play Sellers. But I've also been sort of keeping my blue bottle to myself because, I, you know, I've been listening to the goons for a long, long time. And I think a lot of these guys, uh, you know, George and Jeremy are relatively new to the goons. Yeah. You, you don't want to go, oh, I can do all these voices brilliantly myself, you know, mm. uh, when, people are, when people are trying to do them. But um, there's a temptation in my head every night to just kind of go to the front of the microphone and just do a blue bottle on just the nipples. You know, I have to, have to rein it in, rein it in, John, come on. 
interrupting George in full flow and saying, have you me, tried sh- it like this? Yes, yes. let me show you how it's done. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I think I go with it. Just uh, there's something about him, which so sort of harmless, really. And, uh, you know, <laughs> Yeah, there's something there's something so innocent and beautiful about him. I, just, I, I I wish there was more of it in there. Actually, I mean, obviously, we're trying to play. We're we're trying to tell the story of of Spike and the goons, um, and we do have an awful lot of gooning in there. But uh, <laughs> as far as as far as me coming at it from a goon fan point of view, there could always be more. Yeah, maybe I, that, maybe that's one for if it goes ahead again. So can we just get a bit more Eccles in, or a bit more <laughs> Blue Bottle in, or you know? I, I gather you don't. You're not really, like you said earlier, you're not trying to do an imitation of Spike's voice. Not really, um, no. I mean, I'm not, I'm not being myself either, but there's, there's something, there's something, I'll try to sort of, there's a sort of placement with Spike where he sort of puts his, he sort of puts his, his uh, voice at the front of his mouth. And um, I'm trying to emulate that, that yeah. sort of way of speaking and that sort of, um, yes. it's sort of uh, slightly uh, staccato way of speaking. Um, but it's a very old, an older sort of uh, uh, working class voice rather mm. than, you know, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm more Essex. I'm more kind of lateral than, uh, uh, <laughs> what's the word? Um, more estuary. I estuary. My, 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 <laughs> my own delivery of my voice is quite a wide placement in my mouth. Whereas when you listen to Spike, it's all sort of it's sort of quite in the front of his mouth. So I'm trying to emulate a bit of that, um, but at yeah, the same time, yeah. without without trying too much to to really do a, a, a an impersonation, because otherwise I'll I'll lose what it is I'm trying to say, or, or the you know the, the intention mm. of, or the um, yeah. It's always for me much more about um, the intention of the character and the weight of the character and the, and the, the, the energy of the character, um, but. Um, for me, this is this is the best way to approach a character like like Spike to find an essence. And we actually met. Um, we had uh, Jane Milligan, his yes. daughter, in on mm. the press night, and um, I didn't know she was going to be in. I'm very glad I didn't know that she was going to be in that night until after the show because I would have been ten times more nervous. And um, she was actually the first person that I saw as I went into the bar after the show, and uh, we were both sort of tentatively a bit sort of tactile with each other like oh 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 are we good yeah yeah and then and then she's <laughs> and then she's just hugged me and we had this gorgeous deep long lingering hug for quite a while it felt really special to have her sort of blessing on yeah that, you know and she just sort of said very quietly in my ear, you know you've got him you've absolutely got him um oh, and that great. was lovely that yeah. was really lovely and i and i had said to her at the same time i was like this is you know the most daunting Thing I've ever done because I know how special Spike is not obviously just to her as her dad but but to the people that really do love him you know it's um yeah so as Jane we sort of held each other and it kind of I don't know it sort of felt in a weird way to me like she was hugging her dad for the first time in 20 years and it was just it was I don't know it was a really really special moment for me and a real sort of blessing that yeah continue to do what you're doing you know and i've tried you know i try not to read reviews and things i've seen the kind of stars and things that we get and that's lovely but i think a good review can damage you just as much as a bad review in terms of where your kind of head is at you know if you read something oh he does this really well then you might think oh i've got to lean into that more all right yeah actually if you're already Mm. doing it for nothing but i think on better than all of those kind of stars and reviews could be is 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 
from Jane herself to sort of say, you know, you, you've got this. And yeah. she also said it was one of the most accurate representations of what a recording of a goon show was like that she'd ever seen. So that was, that was lovely to hear for all of us as well, actually, for, for Jeremy and for George as well, to hear that kind of, um, that kind of blessing from her. Excellent. Well, she's a performer herself as well, isn't she? She is. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Fantastic one. She's actually in a show at the moment with a few of our friends that are okay. on this job. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I think um, she's, I think that's coming to because, because your show ends on the 5th, doesn't it, of March? That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think hers is ending mid-March. Um, any idea about the future of the show? Oh, at, the stage? Knows at the moment, um, we're, we're usually as performers, the last people to find out about that mm. kind of thing. But uh, I'm sure there are many secret talks going on <laughs> okay. in rooms across the country and possibly around the world. Um, I, yeah, I, you know, with every new play, there are always hopes for a, for a future life. And, and obviously, I think with the success that this has been at the Watermill, I think um, they're probably kicking themselves that they didn't have a slightly longer run because the way that it's sold has been quite amazing. Actually. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure that it will have some sort of future life. Uh, I would certainly love to be involved if 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 I'm available and, and around at the time, that would be great. But all of these things, it all just depends on timing and you know where they're going to be and when they're going to be. So um, yeah, we'll see. But uh, I, I I I wouldn't um, yeah I I wouldn't uh, not expect it to have some sort of future life, whether it's a tour or into the West End or something else. I'm not sure yet, but uh, yeah, I'm sure all those little secret squirrel talks are going ahead right now. Mm -hmm. Cool. Excellent. Obviously, you, you, you've talked about the challenge of getting the character of Spike. Now, I'm just going to push my glasses up the bridge of my nose and become <laughs> a bit, bit, bit Swedish here and ask you this, okay? Um, <laughs> if you could have met Spike, having, having now you know, played him and, and sort of immersed yourself in, in his character, mm. um, if you could have met him, is there anything you would ask him in terms of any aspects of him, of his character, which are just too... I don't know, opaque or complex for you to fully realize? Is there anything that you would sort of ask him about himself just, just to give you a better, a better take on the character, if you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, gosh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I should have prepared that one earlier. I should have uh, yeah, said that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking that this, this sort of amount of silence and thinking is probably not very good for Don't worry about <laughs> this kind it. of audio, audio entertainment. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I would have just liked to have been in the room with him. I think there's, there's something about, like with, like with Ray, I had the opportunity with Ray to be in the room with him. Mm. But I, never really, I never really sat down with him and picked his brains about anything. I just sort of observed him and was around him. And I found that so much more useful, I think, than, than picking his brain about specific stories or about his mindset, because there's something about just being in the presence of the person that gives you so much of, of who they are. Also, I think Spike, Spike seemingly through, through what I've seen, got more and more uh, sort of doubled down on his um, anger at the world and his... Uh, his yeah. um, and I, and I don't know if he would have been the same Spike that we're trying to play now in the early 50s. But certainly if I could have met Spike in the era that we were playing him in, uh, you know, I probably would have asked him a lot about the war before he'd had a chance to kind of collect his thoughts in a way that 
you know, because he didn't write those books until I think the 70s. Mm. Um, That's right. But maybe there was a there was an opportunity to kind of pick his brain about these things in a less ordered manner mm -hmm. and about the real effect that that had, because, I mean, we only really talk about mental health now in a very open way and still probably not enough. Um, mm. But if you think these, these young men, a whole generation of men were going through this awful, awful post-traumatic stress disorder without ever really talking about it or having counseling about it or having the, the outlet to kind of get this out and I guess that's why the goon shows for him were so cathartic in that way and then the, the books that he then wrote about it but um, I think we can't really fathom how much of an impact those type of experiences can have on a, on a human being you know whether it's to kill another person or it's being blown up or it's you know it's it's um I imagine it to be the most profound experience that a person can have and life-changing. So kind of pre-war Spike and post-war Spike, I'm sure were two completely different people. Oh um, yeah, I mean, I can't comprehend what it would be like to, no. go, to, to go to war under those conditions. No, um, no. And I'm sure- And also that, have that weight of responsibility to, to pick his mind about, about the responsibility of having a young family whilst being the creative driving force of, of something that he had to be incredibly prolific with incredibly quickly. Yeah. Um, and also being paid less than everyone else. Yeah, there is well. that. There is that. Um, oh, well, listen, John, listen, I've taken up too much of your time, but um, mm -hmm. I, I, I do I do appreciate you, you, you know, speaking to me today. And, oh, it's um, been a pleasure. My absolute pleasure. Yeah. Uh, no, and, I, I, I love, you know, it's, it's been such a great opportunity to, for me to kind of revisit these goon shows that I loved as a kid. So to speak to someone else who's, who loves them is, is just, yeah, it's great. So it's been a real pleasure. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Um, obviously, you know, you said before you, you don't know about the future of the show, but have you got, what are your next projects? Can you say? Um, not really. All right, then. <laughs> See you then. I've got a few bits coming out. Uh, I'm under end. I'm under quite a lot of NDA stuff for a lot of it. Right. Um, but you're not the next Spider-Man, are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's James Bond all the way. We've got for James Bond. Yeah. Finally. <laughs> yeah, you'll 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 see me about on on TV and screen and stuff in the next couple of years. Uh, and then obviously I've all, I'm always auditioning for stuff. I've got an, an incredible agent who's always at working her socks off um, to get me in the room. Or these days it's all on Zoom or it's all self-tapes just because of the, the world that we're living in now. Um, there's a possible project coming up at the Old Vic by the end of the year, which is revisiting a thing I've done before, which uh, would be quite good, I think, um, which is not Christmas related. I'll say that, which is good. Okay. <laughs> um but yeah there's a few yeah there's a few things about um for sure yeah john thank you again and uh all the best with the with the show thanks tyler bless you thank you very much for having me on it's been a pleasure i'll be back on wednesday with henry normal talking about the goons and spike um so uh, look out for that in the meantime if you can please uh pop over to itunes and uh, give us a rating a uh, positive one obviously um, and um, all you know, about 40 plus shows now that we have um, are available in all the usual places. So if you haven't heard any, please check those out. In the meantime, till next time, take it easy, take care. Bye.